This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, June 14th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Around the Horn with UBS Asset Management's Fixed Income Team here on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. On a monthly basis, we do like to catch up with top portfolio managers and business heads from Asset Management's Muni, Taxable Fixed Income, and Liquidity Teams. We hear candidly from them on their views on markets and what they believe you should be focused on within the fixed income space. So joining us for this month, Roundtable conversation. Glad to welcome back Anthony Liotti, head of the Fixed Income SMA Advisory Group. Anthony will also serve as our moderator for today's roundtable. We have with us as well Dave Rothweiler, Senior Portfolio Manager for Liquidity Strategies, Dave Ignolo, Head of U.S. Corporate Fixed Income Strategies, Anders Nelson, Portfolio Manager for U.S. High Yield Corporate Fixed Income. David Michael, Portfolio Manager for Emerging Markets, and Oleg Morodikin, Head of Municipal Bond Credit. So with that, Anthony, I'll pass it over to you to lead today's roundtable. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Good to hear your voice again, Dan. Uh, good afternoon to uh, all those at UBS tuning in. Uh, so here we wait. Another uh, another big day within the markets as we await the word from the Fed. Should be about, let's say, an hour from, from now as, as far as this taping is. And, you know, again, we're just going to expect them to provide us with their decision with regard to um, what the next plan is um, with, the, with the Fed funds rate. I would say that the broad expectation is that we will see uh, a pause here at this meeting. You know, give it allow the Fed to assess the impact of of what has clearly been a historic tightening to date, and then uh, decide upon the next move uh, in July. Right, and if we do see that pause, it will be the first time since March of 2020, which is pretty unbelievable, uh, when the Fed did not move very tired. So, so again, it could be a bit of a historic time here. Uh, let me turn quickly to uh, some of the latest economic releases. Uh, clearly, we had a real big one yesterday. We got the monthly CPI figure, and at, at 4%, year-over-year inflation is now at its lowest level since 2021, March of, of 2021, so just about two years, which is pretty, again, pretty unbelievable here. Core CPI rose four-tenths on the month um, for the third straight month. I'd say that was clearly in line with, with estimates. Um, the overall CPI number, however, increased a smaller 0.1%, and that was kind of really aided by lower gasoline prices, which I think um, we're maybe beginning to see at the pumps, but maybe just not yet. Um, I would say, you know, look, given the the market's interpretation of of the data that we got yesterday and even this morning's, you know, PPI, I think both of these numbers, you know, will likely further cement the temporary pause that we're expecting um, uh, later on this afternoon. And, And even though the core number was a touch higher than was expected. It, it, it wasn't a shock number to, to give the Fed any reason to really make any, I would say, you know, completely adjust a decision that may have already been made, right? Um, the wholesale prices that we got from, say, this morning's PPI's release, again, we're seeing the wholesale prices continue to drift lower, and that was really driven by energy and, and food. So hopefully we, as consumers, see that reflected in, in our wallets. <clears throat> again, though, we're not out of the woods. Um, the Fed, I would say, continues to have a very difficult task at hand here. 
But I think all of us on the call here and clearly the read that we see from economists at, at UBS and even out in the street that we feel fairly confident in saying that we're probably, you know, much closer to the end here um, than the beginning of this of this rate tightening cycle. So we're, we're thankfully seeing, again, as I just mentioned, the headline numbers of, of inflation continue to slow and that inflation curve that we've been talking about for some time begin to normalize. A good thing. But perhaps what the Fed will now maybe continue or shift their, their mindset and, and, their, and their focus will be uh, on future rates here in July, if they don't do anything, as we expect in June, will be employment and, and wages. Right? Employment is still very, very hot, although we are seeing wages come down uh, quite a bit here. Uh, let me just spend a little bit of time on rates. Uh, I'd say, you know, when looking at the, the curve, the yield curves in the marketplace, um, the curve remains inverted, both within, obviously, the, the Treasury taxable space uh, and as well as, as the muni space. Uh, and it's been uh, increased the inversion um, over the past couple of weeks, actually, uh, which is a pretty interesting thing to note. Um, I'd say that the banking issues that disrupted the market through through the spring brought upon expectations that the Fed would not uh, need to be as aggressive to cut rates in, in 2023. It was almost as if I'd say that the market was given, or the Fed was given, excuse me, a bit of an artificial tightening measure. But clearly, as we move through May and into June, things have once again changed, right? And that those aggressive opinions that we and bets that you that we saw take place and being put on within the marketplace, if you will, in the month of March and April, with being a bit more aggressive that the Fed was going to cut rates aggressively uh, in 23, that has really waned quite a bit, right? And so we're seeing that right now those opinions have waned uh, and subsided quite a bit and that now the rates might be elevated in this range for lower, I'm sorry, for longer than, than perhaps many um, had once thought. Um, rates, again, overall had shifted higher across the curve. Right now, I'm looking at a 10-year Treasury uh, at a 380 and a 30-year and a at a 388. We got a little bit higher on that 30-year yesterday. Um, and, and we and I would say this. Look, continue to recommend to clients that when we see these backups, whether it be muni rates or, or, or corporate rates or Treasury rates, these are the times that you want to really begin to think about legging into and continue to leg into the market on, on and when we see these, these backups and this little bit of, of disruptions. Um, recession, which is clearly on, on everyone's minds, um, you know, we, we, we might be waiting a little bit longer for this, right? This economy is, is continues to show, show strengths. Um, uh, clearly, there are pockets of, of weakness. Um, things are, are gradually deteriorating, but nothing really significant, nothing really is, is imminent from a, a real major disruption in the market in that the probability of, of recession right now sits at around 70. I looked, looked earlier in the week, it was around 70% for May of, of 2024, right? So, again, May 24 is, is 11 months away. So it's it's a gradual progression there. So um, let's, with that, let me pause here. Um, no pun intended to what the Fed might do today. Um, let me turn it over to um, our PMs. Uh, and we'll begin the around the horn discussion. We'll start it off on the short end like we always do. Um, Dave Rothweiler from our liquidity team. Dave, why don't you take it away, my friend? Yeah, Anthony, just building on what you said, obviously we have a Fed later today. You know, Fed fund futures right now shows about a 95% chance of no hike with about a 55% chance of a hike at 25 in their upcoming July 26 meeting. And uh, Anthony, as you hinted at, it'll you know if they do pause, it'll be their first after ten straight hikes. So it's been it's been quite a journey in terms of yields coming up on the front end. So 
Um, as you as you discussed, you know, it, it's going to be a balancing act between the Fed trying to come off a bit hawkish while still trying to take a breather, given the lag defects of Fed policy. And one thing, you know, some folks forget about is the <clears throat> the regional bank volatility and that effect on the economy as well. Um, you know, it, it, as you as you said earlier, you know, the market pr- priced in some significant cuts in 2023 and. Uh, presently, that story has been pushed out to more of a 2024 story. So, key thing for us, the labor market, well, you know, it's still moderating, still seems okay. Uh, inflation's off its peak. Uh, we see the Fed more is on hold through the year, and we've been staying closer to home on, on the duration front with a more neutral duration posture. So, uh, a lot of talk last few weeks, uh, a lot of stress in the markets around uh, the debt ceiling. Uh, thankfully, you know, Congress resolved that. But uh, in the meantime, Treasury's rapidly building its cash balance. Uh, it was as low as $23 billion early this month, and it's probably going to come up to about $425 billion at the end of this month. As an example, we had about $45 billion in the 42-day cash management bill, about $38 billion in a one-year bill. And you know, from, we, from what we can tell, all were taken down with a fairly healthy bid-to-cover ratio. Another boost to Treasury account uh, cash levels will be corporate tax payments, which is coming up on the 15th as well. So um, interesting to note, balances at the Fed's overnight repo facility has been mo- have been moving down. Uh, money market funds typically park a lot of cash in that facility overnight. Uh, we suspect that money market funds are participating in the TBO market. And with about a about two trillion parked at that facility, we view that as something that you know there's a lot of gunpowder available to buy. Treasuries out the curve as well as money market assets uh, out the curve as well, even in the credit space. So, um, you know, with all that, it's still interesting that T-bill yields are still below SOFR, which is about a 505. Um, in terms of, you know, moving on to the more of a sector discussion, uh, we continue to favor exposure to money center banks and GSIBs as well as ABS. Uh, Industrials has become a harder trade these days, with you know front end being more fully valued and a little spread tech to treasuries. We view ABS as more of an up and quality trade with less idiosyncratic risk versus corporate. So, uh, for more on credit and strategy, I'll pass it on to David Nola. Yeah, no, thanks, David. You know, on the investment grade credit side, um, it really remains on, on solid footing, and we have a lot of investors who are very um, looking to invest in the asset class and really it comes down to, you know, various things. But I think that from a, just a top level um, view, you know, growth is, is forecasted to be roughly 2% uh, the second quarter. Consumption will, remains quite strong and, you know, unemployment, as Anthony talked about, is, is quite low. So, you know, it really lines up well for a higher quality, you know, asset class like investment grade, you know, in this current environment. And there's been a lot of talk about recession and fundamentals, and they've been weakening somewhat. But, but when, you, when you look under the covers for all the different sectors and on the fundamental side, a lot have been able to have been passed on by corporate America to consumers, and they've been able to absorb these costs. And if they haven't been able to pass on all of their costs, uh, companies have been able to reduce costs by just cutting expenses. So, you know, the combination of cutting expenses, passing on costs to consumers, even though fundamentals have weakened somewhat over the last quarter or so as the Fed has hiked rates overall they've held in you know quite well. And then on the on the technical side, we're really seeing strong demand uh into the space. And I think you know one of the things, you know, consistent cash inflows coming into the asset class, um almost every week we're seeing one to two billion dollars coming. I think year to date we're approaching a hundred billion dollars in inflows into the asset class. And really 
I just I think it's a combination of you know with economic growth remaining positive and the Fed approaching their peak uh, in the rate hike cycle. You're seeing you know all the yields right now for intermediate investment grade credit is in the low five. So like our strategies are our active intermediate strategy, which is you know, running around 520, 530, you know 530 type yields. Uh, the one to ten year ladder similar type levels and and really those all in yields you know above five percent historically have been a very attractive entry point for investors who from a total return perspective so you know you're reaching the you know supposedly the peak in the interest rate cycle uh, even if there's one or two more hikes um you know the market is thinking if that's if they do that that's that's it so when you put all that together it, it just puts investment grade credit in a very you know very strong place uh for investors who've waited for almost a decade to get, to get these types of yields so from a fixed income perspective. So we're seeing strong demand, and that technical, I think, is the dominant driver uh, right now for the asset class. Some of the things we've been doing, uh, you know, David, while I was talking about sector positioning, we're continuing to be overweight, the, uh, the financials, uh, the money center banks, uh, you know, the big six, as well as a couple of the strong regional banks. When the regional bank weakness came about uh, a month ago, a month and a half ago, some of the strong regional banks we thought uh, got, kind of got carried out by the wave of weakness over across the board, and so we added exposure in some of those strong regional banks that we have a very strong fundamental, you know, opinion on. So we added some exposure there, uh, as all as well as we have some Canadian bank exposure, but we reduced exposure in the Japanese banks. Um, concerns about yield controls being lifted in, in Japan, um, possibly even this month. So we we reduced exposure there. From a sector perspective, outside of financials, we're underweight um, industrials and we're overweight utilities on the industrial sector. We continue to favor telecom and media. Uh, we like, uh, in the non-cyclical, we like healthcare and, and pharmaceutical. And we're underweight technology with M&A risk and regulatory risk ongoing in the sector and uh, as well as tight relative value spread. So um, from a sector perspective, we, you know, favored kind of the mainly, mainly the financials and utilities. They had a lot of new issuance about two, three months ago, and it was very attractive concessions, so we, we participated in, in those new issues. And then from a curve perspective, um, you know, as, as Anthony talked about, the treasure curve's inverted. So we really, you know, you know, really like the front end of the curve because of the attractive wall and yields. Um, but we have been extending out into the belly, the five to ten-year part of the curve, because we do want to extend duration. So our active intermediate strategy, we've been extending duration toward four years. We really want to start to grab additional, uh, you know, duration and maturity out the curve for all of our clients because we think we are approaching a peak in rates. Uh, we might have already actually seen the peak um, in the front end and the, and the, the long end of the Treasury curve in the last couple of months. So, because we still haven't, you know, broached that, that that level from we saw in the year. So we are looking to extend duration with the Fed approaching their, you know, the rate hike cycle, uh, the peak, and extending for all of our clients, especially for the active intermediate strategy. So I'd say, as I said, the yields are in the fives, and um, you know, we have a little bit of high yield exposure maybe for the active strategy. You know, one to two percent, we can go up to ten percent. We're still kind of sitting closer to. You know, two percent. We've added a little more exposure in the Treasury space. Um, you know, to add a little additional uh, duration for the active intermediate strategy to uh, to grab that through the Treasury market for lower transaction costs. But in general, we're, we're very comfortable for credit in these in this environment, uh, as long as the economy stays uh, you know somewhat positive. And uh, at this point, third quarter is looking pretty strong. As expectations are growth is is going to be pretty resilient in the third quarter as well. I think, as Anthony said, the test will be as we go into the fourth quarter, uh, and more importantly, what we see in the early 2024. But in general, um, you know, very comfortable with credit, and these all-in yields are very attractive, and we're seeing that with very consistent inflows uh, into the into the asset class. And with that, 
I will pass it over to Anders to talk about Caillou. Uh, thank you, David. Uh, investors were more cautious last month with risk being propped up by uh, just a handful of names in the mega cap tech sector. Small caps and value did poorly, spreads widened, and high yield funds had outflows. Over the last uh, few weeks, uh, the sentiment has shifted. The market's been doing better since the debt ceiling uncertainty passed, and we got another boost after the job numbers about two weeks ago that pointed toward a resilient economy with a pause in rate hikes which was further supported with yesterday's CPI print. High yield spreads have tightened and the asset class has seen inflows. As we head into the summer, we usually see trading activity slow, but the market will continue to trade on economic data until we get started with Q2 earnings. Spreads have been moving in a range of about 100 basis points here to date, but we, uh, you might not even see that too much in your portfolios as uh, yields um, are offset by our uh, spread moves are offset by treasury rate moves, uh, causing all-in yields to be more stable. Right now, overall high-yield spreads sit right around 415 uh, over treasuries, which we think is a touch inside fair value. And there is some questioning by the investor community going on if we have come too far given the uncertain backdrop. Spreads could definitely tighten inside 400 again, just as we saw earlier this spring. If this momentum continues and the market seems to want to grind tighter, as long as there's no shock to the system. At current levels, we think risk is skewed towards higher versus lower spreads, so we continue to remain focused on credit selection as tighter financial policy works its way through the economy and to borrowers. Uh, we still think being in the higher quality front end of the market is attractive. Uh, that said, we don't see much widening uh, happening either. Defaults are expected to remain manageable and uh, in line with historical averages, and technicals are very supportive. High-yield spreads have proven to be resilient, even when faced with the concerning headwinds, such as a 500 basis point hiking cycle and worries around a recession. Investors have cash on sidelines waiting to be put to work on dips, and bond supply is scarce, with issuers continuing to see upgrades to investment grade and a slow primary market which uh, sustains the demand in the secondary market. Today, the short-duration high-yield strategies uh, yield 6.7% with a duration of 2.1 years and a double B-minus rating. Our other offering is the crossover portfolio, which holds 45% in short-duration high-yield and 55% in IG. That yield, 6.1%, has a duration of 2.9 years and a triple B-minus rating. We've been looking to increase uh, carry in the strategies, so we've been adding new credits that our analyst team likes uh, across sectors. I'll now hand it over to David Michael to speak about emerging markets. Thank you, Anders. Um, spreads in emerging markets credits have rallied 38 basis points over the last month. Uh, emerging markets investment grade credit tightened by nine basis points. Emerging market high yield credits tightened by a very robust 78 basis points, all while 10-year treasuries sold off by 35 basis points. Total EM returns were held down by the sell-off in U.S. Treasuries, but emerging markets still managed positive net returns over the last month. <clears throat> markets continued to reflect disappointment with a slower-than-expected rebound in China, and this was met with multiple weeks of rumors uh, on Chinese domestic stimulus. Last week, China kept the triple R, and this week they kept repo rates. We expect fiscal stimulus to follow, and uh, provide support to their domestic economy. In Turkey, we saw presidential elections followed by an expected U-turn into more orthodox monetary policy, and Nigeria's new presidential administration took office and immediately cut 
domestic fuel subsidies and depreciated their currencies. With a positive tone in emerging markets, uh, was offset by higher interest rates and better-than-expected U.S. economic data, leaving commodity performance somewhat mixed. In this backdrop, emerging market primary activity remained very low, and May was one of the lowest months on record. Not only did we see net negative supply in May, but emerging market credit has seen net negative supply for 13 of the last 15 months. As we move through the summer, we expect primary activity to remain low, with monthly rollover between 20 and $30 billion of cash coming back into the asset class. This leaves emerging markets managers in a strong technical position with room for emerging market spreads to tighten in the second half of this year if global risk appetite remains strong. Now let me hand it off to Oleg for an update from the Muni team. Uh, thank you very much. Um, well, one statistic in particular uh, has really been overshadowing many of the factors that we've focused on uh, month over month. Uh, June is typically known as the heaviest month for coupon payments and maturities, and naturally investors uh, will look uh, to put this cash back into the market. But this year in particular, the primary market uh, supply has not been uh, fruitful, to say the least. Uh, year-to-date issuance is down 21%. And over the next 30 days, uh, roughly 30 billion in, in bonds are maturing, relative to roughly 6 billion in, uh, in new supply. And this supply demand imbalance uh, is strongly in our favor, and barring any big surprise, we expect this dynamic to remain the same throughout the summer. Um, somewhat offsetting this strength uh, from a supply demand uh, perspective, it's heavier. Dealer inventories, uh, which are uh, roughly 14% higher than the one-year rolling average. Um, all of the negotiated deals have been placed successfully by these dealers, uh, and we su- suspect that uh, portions of the competitive deals uh, that are being priced uh, in the unattractive areas of the curve, uh, coupled with the FDIC list uh, muni bonds that are being liquidated out of those uh, SVB and signature bank portfolios, are contributing to those heavier deal, uh, dealer inventories. Uh, and this could pressure secondary market bonds and uh, cause them to get a little bit cheaper. Um, having said this, uh, the FDIC sales have averaged uh, $330 million per day. And assuming they continue selling at this uh, pace, uh, bond sales will be completed in the first week of July. Uh, that should relieve uh, some of the pressure from uh, dealer inventories. Um, additionally, this week's primary market calendar is on the thinner side. It's just $3.5 billion. Uh, we're used to seeing 8 to $10 billion on a weekly basis, so that should relieve uh, pressure from those inventories further. Uh, we're continuing to see weekly outflows out of MUI mutual funds, uh, as reported by Lipper, but at this point, uh, we don't see the magnitude of the flows to be large enough to signal any sort of shift out of the asset class. Uh, on the contrary, uh, if we look at our old reliable muni treasury ratio, uh, municipals transition from very rich levels to levels that are fair value and even cheap. Uh, the two-year ratio is currently at 63% relative to the 61% uh, one-year average. The five-year is at the one-year average of 66%. Uh, 30-year is approaching fair value, and 10-year still remains rich. Uh, these ratios are just one piece of the puzzle. 
at this point, uh, doesn't give us any clear signals uh, of favoring one asset class versus another. Um, but the cheap to fair value levels have helped support demand for municipals. With the uh, debt ceiling uh, issue in our rear view, uh, munis performed well uh, relative to uh, corporates and governments. Month to date, muni index returns 53 basis points, while treasuries are up 39. And year to date, munis with a 2.19% uh, return are outperforming treasuries by 24 basis points. Uh, as a result of the debt ceiling uh, deal, state and local governments got to hang on to the unspent federal aid they received during the pandemic and uh, the pre-refunded bonds that are backed mainly by treasuries and agencies um, have returned back to normalized levels in terms of spread. We on the team maintain an ample uh, VRDN position. Um, these are highly rated, highly liquid cash-like instruments, uh, which have offered uh, very attractive SIFMA reset rates, averaging 3% over the last six months. Uh, part of our strategy is barbelling these VRDNs with the 12 to 15 year area of the curve and the 23 to 25 year area of the curve. Over the last month, uh, however, um, last month or so, we've been reducing our overall exposure to VRDNs from about 35 to 30%, uh, all in order to take advantage of that longer portion of the curve, uh, where we see it makes sense uh, from a thorough return perspective. Um, over the course of the last 30 days, we've traded roughly one and a quarter billion dollars in muni bonds. Uh, we continue to add uh, to the higher rated, um, quote unquote, recession proof essential service providers, uh, buying larger blocks of names such as Salt River Power in Arizona, Lower Colorado River Authority in Texas. Uh, we also continue to buy those higher beta issuers, uh, such as the state of Illinois, uh, New Jersey, at levels which we still believe offer value to investors, especially given uh, the credit uh, improvement that we've seen over the last year. Overall, I would say credit quality in munis remains uh, strong uh, within our space. We're starting to see some reports of revenue shortfalls, especially in states that are uh, heavily reliant on income taxes. Uh, in May, Moody's revised the rating on California, one of the largest economies in the world, to negative, uh, with the state's budget shortfall go growing to uh, nearly $32 billion. Another area of concern is mass transit. Uh, we've come to a point where the money that's been handed out by the federal government uh, during the pandemic is getting depleted uh, as these agencies continue to plug holes in their budgets uh, due to decreased ridership. We still have a large percentage of the population working from home, uh, and issuers within the mass transit sectors are going to have to make some serious adjustments uh, on the spending side of the equation in order to remain solvent and avoid downgrades by rating agencies. Uh, having said this, not all states, not all transit agencies are in the same shoes. Uh, it's never been more important to understand exactly how uh, these transit agencies fund their operations, uh, the legal structures that secure bondholders, and in general what efforts are being put in place to come up with balanced operations desp despite the lack of ridership. Um, with that, Anthony, I will pass it back on to you. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Oleg. Very much appreciate it. So I guess we're saying credit is in credit review 
uh, once again takes takes center stage here right, in a time of, of, of credit uncertainty is building here. Um, I, I think Steve Kenner, my colleague, may have a question. Steve, you on the line? You may want to pop a question in to some of the taxable guys. Sure. Uh, just a quick question on the taxable side. You know, we've heard a lot about the energy sector being a little bit more of a defensive um, uh, sector these days, uh, but we have been seeing a lot of pressure uh, throughout the year on oil prices. I'm just wondering, um, you know, how strong a conviction we have there. Any thoughts you could share with those who are uh, listening to this podcast, uh, our views on, on the energy space? Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Steve and David. So I'll just say on the investment grade side for energy, uh, two things. One, um, the balance sheets for the energy sector are quite strong. After the oil dropped, you know, down to the 20 to $30 a barrel, they really got caught with uh, being over-levered somewhat and, and had too much in, in investment spending and, and capital investment. So they really righted the ship on the balance sheet side and really strengthened their balance sheet to uh, prevent something similar to happen down the road, too. There's a talk of uh, economic growth slowing in the second half of the year. I think what we're seeing is that OPEC is um, starting to fight against that and cut production uh, to try to keep oil prices high. So as long as the economy stays resilient um, and uh, we know the balance sheets are strong with what OPEC's been doing, we're still very comfortable with our energy positions for uh, in, in our strategies for the investment grade uh, part of the, of the market. Thanks, David. All right, great. Uh, any other questions? I don't know if there are. <clears throat> oh, to, to the uh, to the panel, thanks again for another uh, really good, informative uh, monthly around the horn call. I, I appreciate all the time. Uh, to the audience, uh, thank you for tuning in. Uh, and I continue to say there is um, and will continue to be a tremendous amount of, of, of vol in the markets here. Um, please reach out to, to any one of us. We are more than happy um, and always willing to be client-facing. Uh, to assist you um, with with the investment decisions that you have um, before you. So, again, thank you for tuning in. Have a great great day, and uh, let's see what the Fed does. Take care. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreement and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy.